With the vaccine issue, you know, we literally have sample sizes of millions of people across the world, and we know they save lives. We know they don't cause harm in the vast majority, and I'm talking 20 million to one kind of ratio. Now, is there one in 20 million people who have a side effect? I'm talking about a relatively serious side effect. It's possible because we can't measure one in 20 million with any real authority. We don't have the studies that can work it out at that level. We're working out the causation of the rare but real and there are a few real side effects around vaccines but they are so rare and for the most part so small that they don't come close to the benefits that we get from vaccinating. That is Emmy winning science documentary maker Sonia Pemberton and this is the Osher Ginsberg podcast. And welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This episode is with Emmy-winning science documentary maker Sonia Pemberton. You can find her on Twitter at Pemberton Films or watch any of her films at genepoolproductions.com. More about Sonia in just a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for coming. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is a podcast that will hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That is all I'm here to do. Hopefully, you know, you'll hear something in the next hour and a bit that makes you think, oh, go about your day just a little bit differently, hopefully in an upward trajectory. So who am I? Who, who am I? Well, I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm from Sydney, Australia. I'm married to a hero named Audrey Griffin. She's awesome. Have a superb stepdaughter, G, and, and a baby on the way in just a couple of weeks. So very exciting times back at our place. And I wanted to thank you so much for letting me know where you're listening to this show. It's uh, basically just a photograph of what you're looking at Right now, it's called a podsie, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E, and just email it through to sendosheremail at gmail.com. I'm not really on Instagram anymore. If you do send me a DM on Instagram, Haley will write back to you and say, he's not on Instagram. So I've had to take it off my phone. Yeah, you can hear about that on other shows. Um, a big thank you very much, because I'd love to see where you're listening. And um, Melissa sent me a fantastic picture. She just emptied a puzzle and it looked like a photo of just a squillion different coloured buttons. She just emptied the puzzle onto the table. She was getting going on her big 500-piece puzzle. She was going to listen to the show while she did that, which is superb. Uh, Neil sent a great picture of the feet around him on the London Underground as he listened on the way to work. And Charlie... Charlie, the dumpster diver from Brisbane, who came up to see the show in, in Brisbane when I did the live show there, sent a ripper photo on the train to Paris. Charlie was on the way to watch the Women's World Cup. Absolutely marvellous to be to be with you no matter what you're doing at the moment, wherever you are in the world. It's just, just magnificent. And also a massive thank you to anyone that reviewed the show. Reviews on iTunes, they really help us. I know you listen on Spotify and Android, but since the iTunes reviews and the iTunes charts are the ones that publicists pay attention to. So in an effort to hopefully get you to review and rate the show in iTunes, I'm going to read some out. Maybe I'll read yours out next week. Um, big thanks to K-Bro, who wrote, Osha makes you think a lot 
about everything. I started this podcast by searching celebrities on you and whose story I was interested in. Now I'll listen to them all, whether I know them or not, because Osh's guests all have interesting stories. Oh, Osh's interview style is research, genuine and engaging. He's open and honest about his own experience and can really get a person to open up. Osh's own story, which weaves through the episodes, is almost more interesting and adds so much to the series. A real find and a staple in my pod list. Thank you so much, Cabro. And this one came from, I think it's, is Mills Mums? It's all one word. Learn something new every week. It says our Osher's podcast is always a worthwhile listen. He's a very engaging interviewer, skilled at building rapport and finding some common ground to tease out conversations you won't hear elsewhere. I learn something or get a new perspective to think about every time I listen. That is the, that's the idea. That's what I just told you I wanted to do. That's great. KPI hit. Well done. Gaze closed take the rest of the day off. Well, I can't really. Got to bring you this show. Uh, so thank you very, very much for listening. And, and I know a lot of people listen on other platforms, but if you can rate and review the show on the platform you're listening on, it really, really, really helps us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, let me tell you about my guest today and how she and I came to have this discussion. Sonia Pemberton is an Emmy-winning science documentary maker. She's recently made well, a bunch of films, Jabbed, Love, Fear and Vaccines, Uranium, Twisting the Dragon's Tail, and now Vitamania, which is all about how many, if any, vitamins we need to supplement daily. Now, Sonia and I got in touch a couple of months ago, after I put a photo of myself getting some vaccination shots, some injections, I put the photo of me getting injections up on Instagram. We have a baby on the way. I do not want that baby to die of a disease that belongs in a Dickens novel. Vaccines are proven effective by the scientific process, so therefore, I use vaccines. It's a pretty simple thing to say, but some people lost their fucking minds. There's a lot of very convincing, very flawed information out in the world about vaccines. It's really frightening. To the point that people were accusing me of wanting to kill my child or their child and accusing me of being on the take from pharmaceutical companies. And so I explored a bit as to why people might believe such things, things that clearly, clearly are not true. And I started to discover that if I took the attitude of I'm right and you're stupid, well, that wouldn't change anything. But if I acknowledge the fear and the incredible desire to want to cause no harm to their child and that 
being the root of the desire to explore if vaccines were safe, well, then it became a different story. And I have to thank uh, listeners uh, for helping me find that. There's a lot of long conversations, and that's in previous episodes if you want to listen to that. Because, look, if you Google something for long enough, eventually you'll get an answer that confirms what you want to see. That's how algorithms work. You get more of what you click on. Then you eventually vanish down into a filter bubble of confirmation bias where you never see anything other than the kind of things that you click on and the kind of things that you agree with. And if you spend long enough on Facebook and YouTube, you'll quickly come across a conspiracy theory, no matter what it is that you're looking for. And then things start to get even scarier. Because you're reading all these things and you're watching all these things and they're very well made and they're super frightening and eventually wanting to feel less alone or looking for others in a time of fear, what happens is people start to reach out to others who are also concerned. And that usually happens in a Facebook group. There they find a welcome ear and support around, you've done the right thing. More confirmation they're making the right decision. And that's when it gets a bit cult-like for me because that's where, I guess, an appeal to purity kicks in and the threat of exclusion, retribution if you ever leave the group or say anything against the group. And I've seen that in the vegan community. I see it in the vegan community all the time. I get accused of it all the time. So people, because they don't want to be alone, they start to identify as a part of that group or a part of that movement, even if it's a movement based on a collective delusion that's been disproven time and again. Once that identity is set in or starts to set in, any challenge to the base belief of that identity is seen as heresy and it ends up pushing people deeper into that delusion. And that's, I guess, where the incredible reactionary positions and violent language starts to happen. It's really confronting. And it would be super scary to be in because you've been convinced that this stuff's real. You'd have a belief that the world's out to get you and me and your kids. I could tell you it doesn't, but they told you I'd say that, didn't they? As we learned from Joe Thornley a couple of weeks back, that is straight up cult talk 101. So in the middle of all this noise and anger, when I was just trying to talk about something that is real, I was contacted by... A friend of mine, Caroline Pegram, who also looks after Dr. Carl, and she's friends with Sonia. She said I should have Sonia on the podcast because of an extraordinary film that she made, a film called Jabbed, that I told you about before. It's a film all about vaccines, how vaccines work, how the immune systems work, the history of vaccines, a history that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And we managed to make that conversation happen. It was over Skype, so thanks in advance for understanding the audio quality. And if you've not seen Jabbed, I thoroughly recommend you do it. You can get it on uh, Sonia's website, genepoolproductions.com. That's where I watched it. Now, in that film, Sonia tells the story of six people, three who had very positive reactions to getting vaccinated and three who had negative reactions to getting vaccinated. It's a very, very clever film. She's a very clever human being, and you're about to hear why. And I hope you can hear it. I really do. Because things sometimes feel, well, to me, they feel a little like in, in some countries where you hear about that if, if you question a holy book or, you know, you get ostracised or you get thrown in jail or something worse. Because the scientific process is the way that we as humans find agreed upon truths. Is it perfect? No. Has it 
brought us all out of pestilence, death and famine? Absolutely. And when I say all, I mean you, because if you're listening to this on a smartphone, there's a high chance that you have sanitation. (laughs) Fairly clean drinking water. Science, thank you. Is the scientific process the best we've got? It is. So I hope you recognise in your own self, in your own body, if there's any rebound effect going on or if there's any resistance or wanting to turn this off because it might be confronting, that may be a preference bubble kicking in. Just, I'd encourage you to notice it. Just keep listening. If you like what Sonia has to say, you can find her on Twitter at Pemberton Films, P-E-M-B-E-R-T-O-N-F-I-L-M-S. And you can watch all the films, genepoolproductions.com. I do hope that you enjoy this conversation with the ever-so-delightful, truth-seeking superstar who is Sonia Pemberton. I'm so grateful we can speak because I was told my, my friend, Ruben Meerman, who used to live with Caroline, who knows you, and Caroline said, oh, you got to talk to Sonia. She'll make you feel more normal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She thought she was there as part of, you know, when we were going through all of that. I made two films about vaccines. One, which is a global international film called Jabbed, uh, Love, Fear and Vaccines, and that's on SBS. You can still watch it on SBS Catch Up. And um, then the next one, Vaccines Calling the Shots for the Americans. When we toured America with the film, the threat level was considered quite high and I was in need of um, advice on protection, uh, physical protection, possibilities of, you know, did I need a bulletproof vest, etc. And that was really shocking for me because here in this country, you might get nasty emails and nasty letters in your letterbox, which of course I got lots of, and I got some really nasty ones. But I've never actually physically felt threatened. And that was quite a shock to see how in America, you know, as they said to me, you were having a press conference, there's 200 people in the room, some of them might have guns. That was really shocking. Now, of course, it didn't come to anything. It came to some shouting and some angry stuff and lots and lots of conversations that were really challenging. But fundamentally, the conversation became quite good and quite civilised. And I guess that's one of the big things for me is um, what I couldn't get over was if you're open to having that conversation about your understanding of vaccines and other people's understanding of vaccines um, and you're really having a conversation, really big things happen. And I started off, you know, seven, eight years ago. I mean, I'm science educated. I'm from from a scientific family. My father's a doctor. My grandfather's a doctor. I originally went to study medicine. Um, You know, I come with a scientific bias. I'm quite clear on that. Um, And I brought that to making the films on vaccines. But over the two and a half, three years of research I did and all of the people I spoke to and so many families um, who were fearful, so many mothers in particular who were fearful around vaccines and didn't know what to do, and quite a few people who were really against them, um, somewhere along the line, I can actually remember the day, I was sitting at this very desk actually, um, when I was talking to a father in America who believed his daughter had been killed by the HPV, the human papillomavirus vaccine. And basically at 14, she had her first vaccine and he said she became withdrawn and a bit aggressive and, and slamming doors and things. And then she had the second vaccine um, six months later and she became more isolated. And then the third and final in the series of vaccines, she was so withdrawn, she went to her bedroom and one day she killed herself. And um, he on the phone spoke to me about how angry he was about this vaccine and how 
destroyed their families' lives. And it was heartbreaking because, of course, when I asked, you know, could I speak to the doctors and the medical professionals? And Because in order to make a film, I have to verify anybody's information and research, not to say the tragedy didn't happen, but the cause of the tragedy. And, of course, there's no real correlation between a vaccine and depression and aggression in a child and there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that teenagers go through difficult times and sometimes teenagers are driven to points where they feel like they can't have any other option than commit suicide but I can remember putting the phone down and crying crying just weeping going I can't do this who am I to say to any parent who is terrified of a vaccine that look, it's fine, just toughen up and take them, you know. No way. What, what I really learned was the fear is real. The fear of vaccines for many people is real. But what people often forget is the vast majority of people vaccinate, vast majority. You know, 98% of people vaccinate in this country. That's huge. 1.2% of refusers. Yeah, it's tiny. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. And let's get a grip on where the problem is. The problem is not really with the refusers. You know, the problem is the fear. And how do we help people explore the issues well and thoughtfully and without people shouting at them? And anyway, I did an awful lot of work to make a film, particularly the jabbed film, that just helps talk to people who, from that position of, okay, we have three stories here of vaccine injuries, real vaccine injuries, genuine. This is something where the vaccine was involved in something going wrong. And we have three stories of vaccines absolutely being lifesavers and, and how critical they are. And over the course of the film, you explore all of the range of those stories. And what you quickly realise is um, that those vaccine injuries, and I'm doing inverted commas here, were correlation not causation you can't prove the causation you can't um what you can find is genetic underpinnings that mean that person you know triggered a particular reaction in that person because of this particular gene what you do find is in this particular case there was a fault with this particular vaccine um and so the film takes you through those things but the end game for me has been um it's the best option we've got right now it's about give me a better way to prevent hundreds of millions of deaths every year and sure yeah you know the faster you get these little nano patches which are just sticking plasters on your arm instead of needles the more relaxed people will get but yeah. what i was really hard i was here in australia do you know what the number one fear of vaccines is no according to the big survey we did it's simply fear of pain to the child they don't like their child crying it's really simple it's really simple. That's the number one fear. Autism wasn't even in the top ten in Australia. It's number four in America. Wasn't even in the top ten fears here. Because most people in Australia realise the autism link's non-existent. You know, it's not true. Um, so that's not a problem. The real problem is it's it's scary for the kid. It's scary for the parent. Maybe they don't understand how the immune system works. Maybe they don't quite understand why they're doing it. But the good news is, you know, most people do it, and it doesn't have any problems from the vast majority of people. When I look at, I mean, I'm, I have a very similar background to you. Both my parents are doctors, were doctors. Both my mum's parents were doctors. Uh, so this idea of if there's evidence, we'll go with it. And as soon as new evidence shows up, now we go with that. What we did yesterday doesn't matter anymore. It was kind of how we got brought up as kids. And that's kind of how we saw the, the world. But as I, you know, got more and more exposed to this, this fear and 
I had to understand two really important things, Sonia, is that I'm right and you're stupid doesn't get us anywhere. Nowhere at all. And, and actually, someone took the great time to explain to me uh, online. She took a long time. She comes from the, the Northern Rivers, uh, which is the most unvaccinated part of Australia. That's kind of Byron Lismore up there. And she took great pains and explained to me that she just loves her kids so much and she doesn't want to see her kid hurt. She'd seen some things online that were really, really convincing, really scary, and as you and I know, untrue. But that was so convincing and so scary, she was, I don't want to do this. And it took uh, a nurse in the area who just basically called her every week and just listened to her and talked her through it and talked her through it and talked her through it and came up with a schedule that she'd feel happy with. And eventually she got vaccinated. And once I saw exactly what you're talking about, it's like, it's, it's not so much of, well, though some people do have the hat on, the tinfoil hat on. And, you know, I'll ask you about what you've done with the Lamborghinis that you've bought with the big farmer money in a second. But, um, some people do have that conspiracy thing on which I'm interested about, but the correlation versus causation thing it's a concept that is fairly simple to grasp once you've got it, but if you've never been introduced to it, it can be overwhelming. How would you best explain to someone the difference between correlation and causation? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I guess it's as simple as saying, um, you know, 100 people ate ice creams and 75 of them also ride bicycles. Therefore, ice creams cause the riding of bicycles in the majority of cases. Uh, they're just too... They're just two numbers that could correlate, you know, um, uh, but have nothing to do with each other in terms of cause. I mean, that's a bit of an idiotic one off the top of my head, but um, it's it's really interesting because working out cause is the job of logic and rational thinking and critical thinking. It's the job that really is assigned to what we call science. And I don't mean science just in terms of what labs and what researchers and paid scientists do, but it's what we all do when we're thinking logically and testing a hypothesis. You know, is my cold because I bumped into Auntie Lucy last week or did I catch it off the tram yesterday? You know, we're always trying to work out cause she says, speaking with a slight cold at the moment. And it's hard. It's really hard in everyday life to, life to work out cause, and it's really hard to work it out um, across medical issues in particular. And that's what, you know, scientists do in their tens of thousands across the world with study subjects that are hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions. And so with the vaccine issue, you know, we literally have sample sizes of millions of people across the world and we know they save lives um, we know they don't cause harm in the vast majority and i'm talking 20 million to one kind of ratio now is there one in 20 million people who have a side effect um, i'm talking about a relatively serious side effect it's possible because we can't measure one in 20 million with any real authority we don't have the studies that can work it out at that level what we do know is you get lots of little things you know like people get inflamed arms. you know that's because your immune system's reacting some people are allergic to um to rubber and rubber gloves that you come into contact. That's one of the really interesting ones that I found. You know, that's one of the things that some people are reacting to, not the actual vaccine, but the rubber. Um, working out the, the, the causation of the rare but 
real, and there are a few real side effects around vaccines, but they are so rare and for the most part so small that they really don't come close to the benefits that we get from vaccinating. And I guess, you know, I, I like to think of this, a lot of people think of the vaccine debate as being polarised, like us and them. I don't think of it like that at all. I have begun to think of it as a spectrum. And in my head, it's a spectrum of five groups. And on the one far side is that unquestioning acceptor. You know, the person who just says, all vaccines are great, that's it. And then there's the questioning acceptor. I think vaccines are really good and they do really good things, but I'm just going to check this one out and read a bit about it before I do it. Then there's the hesitant, the person who's not quite sure, thinks about it, takes quite a lot of time. Then there's the delayer, the person that who I'm going to do it one day, maybe, but not yet, and might put it off till the child is 10 or something like that. And then there's the outright refuser. Uh, and the person that refuses the vaccine on average is about less than 1.5% of the Australian population. And America, it's about the same. But the hesitant, which are the two groups on the side of that, you know, the, the delayers and the, um, the hesitant, that group's, you know, quite substantial. Depending on which studies you look at, that's 12, 15, maybe even 20% of the population. Now, if you look at the overall statistics, 98% of people go on to vaccinate on average across the country, depending on the vaccine. So the vast majority do. And that means that most people can be shown how it works and how it's beneficial and how it's helpful. And you know, I look at the current fear around um, particularly the measles, uh, MMR vaccine and the, the uptake of measles here in Australia and around the world, and I find it really depressing uh, and I find it really scary. And everything I've learned from years of questioning deeply and asking the hard questions around these vaccines is it's the best option we have got. If you want to protect yourself against disease, it's the best option we've got. And that might sound simplistic, but that's where I would narrow it down, you know. Your choice is you take a gamble um, with the disease. You might say, okay, it only kills roughly one in 1,000, but that's still one in 1,000. Um, and then, you know, every couple of hundred, you're going to get people who have some form of brain damage, hearing loss, sometimes eye damage. Um, we met people who had encephalopathy, you know, um, brain inflammation with measles uh, during the English outbreak, and we filmed it, and you can see it in the film. And the young, one of the young women we filmed with, um, she was in a coma for a week, and she had significant brain damage. Um, you know, she used to be a real uh, gamer and play this particular game. I can't remember what it is. Um, and she was a, like champion gamer in Liverpool in England and her sister kept saying to me hey she used to be really good and she's not no she's shy and you go goodness me you know she just couldn't play and it was because talking to her doctor the encephalitis had caused swelling on the brain that caused permanent damage and my dad who's a, a pediatrician he said that when he was in training they used to say that a very bad case of measles you could lose a percentage or two point in IQ now, that's hard to verify with any of the hard studies, but anecdotally around the doctors, this is what their sense of it was. People would just lose a bit of their sharpness. Now, a couple of IQ points is the difference between getting into university or not or having the job that you want. So you might go, very few people die, 
But then there's always a spectrum of other things. And of course, long-term with measles, you've got this horrible, horrible kickback that can happen 5, 10, 15 years later. I think it's SSPE. I'm not quite up to date with my jargon. But it's um, this, this acute, fatal disease that comes a very small proportion of people. I think it's one in 100,000 people who have experienced measles. Disease. But they die from it years later. And we interviewed families who had lost, you know, a child who had measles age five who died age 17. And you go, what? You know, <laughs> this is not a simple disease, you know. <laughs> and I love the kind of, it, we've got Gus or Gus Nossel in the film and he talks about evolution and how evolution's, you know, been working pretty hard to tackle us down and to eradicate the weak and to only the strong survive. And we all know Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, I'm sure your listeners are comfortable with that. And, uh, you know, the thing is, these bugs have evolved to fight us. So we want the defense, best defenses we can possibly get. Yeah. I, I guess the other thing that, that's evolved at the same time as, as these vaccines and has been amplified in a colossal way, certainly the last 15 years with the advent of, of the internet, is suspicion of these vaccines. In the movie Jabbed, you show this extraordinary drawing of the cowpox vaccine being administered, uh, which was the first kind of real widespread way of protecting the population from smallpox, which which killed jillions of people. Uh, <laughs> it wiped out, wiped out country, like wiped out economies. And on one side of the painting is, and this is from the 1700s, and one side of the painting is this particular doctor um, administering the vaccine. And the other side of the painting, because it came from uh, cowpox, um, people developing cow horns and snouts and things like that. So the fear and misunderstanding has always been there, but it's just so amplified now. Like, And right now it seems to be incredibly organized, incredibly organized, and like there's big money to be made, people charging 200 bucks a pop to come and hear someone talk. Yeah. Who's to gain yeah. from spreading a message? I'm not charging $200 a pop. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is like, who's the one getting paid here? Yeah, this whole idea of where you make money. Look, the whole amplification of misinformation, yeah, it's a phenomenon. And as you have spoken about in other um, podcasts, I mean, yeah, it's a really, really big issue. I've worked closely with a guy, uh, Professor Dan Kahan uh, at Yale. He runs a thing called the Cultural Cognition Project. He's amazing. And anyway, he talks about conflict entrepreneurs think about this this is the people who make money from sustaining conflict and often they're well-meaning people who see themselves as doing a good job you know fighting a good fight but actually their business model is around sustaining conflict and in some ways this is going to be terribly unpopular but anyway but in some ways it can be people like Bill Nye He's pro-science, he's got a big science show because he shouts at people and says, you're wrong if you don't believe science. He put, you know, he pushes, I, I actually agree with a lot of what he says, but part of his merchandising, if you like, and you know, part of his whole identity, 
this corporate identity is inflaming conflict. Um, and I don't think that's helpful. If you look at anti-GMO people and some and some of the Greens, my sister is, works for the Greens and I, I've got very good friends in the Greens party. I'm always tackling them about saying don't get attached. This is part of the kind of money-making side of things, that you go on tour, that you, you fight things and you, you inflame conflict just to sustain your business model. If you look critically at it, some of the people we admire in the world, you know, the conflict sustains them thing that I try to do with all of our films, and it's not easy because <laughs> I'm in television. Television likes conflict. The media likes conflict. Every film I make and our company, Jinkle, make, we try to cool down the conflict. If you look at the tone we take, if you look at the way we explore the issues, I avoid exacerbating conflict. And it's hard to do because your broadcasters and your people who are marketing your film, um, they say, you know, you'll get many more people watching if you make them terrified. You'll get lots more people watching if you make them angry. You'll get lots more people uh, watching if you really push that button or push this button. I try very, very hard to avoid being part of the conflict um, generation process. Uh, My way of approaching it is going, let's have a look at what the issues are, and these are some of the biggest issues of our times, you know, from climate change to vaccines to uh, what we do about power and uranium and recently how we feed ourselves, food supply, vitamins, and at the moment we're doing genetic engineering. You know, like I haven't got time to waste on the little subjects, but I don't want to take them on as an us and them, quite the opposite. I want to take it on it so we're all in this together, we have different points of view, let's have a look at this from varied points of view view and I do the super 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 deep deep dive you know the average film is five years in development um at least two years in research with banks of researchers you know with Nobel laureates on our advisory committee and all sorts of really high living scientists on our advisory committees from multiple points of view I must add so you know for the jabbed film I had homeopaths on our advisory um, committee I had the queen's homeopath in the film, I can't tell you how many scientists objected to that. Um, I didn't know the Queen had a homeopath. I thought that was extraordinary. And the incredible thing is the Queen's homeopath is pro-vaccines and shows you that the history of homeopathy and the original chiropractic kind of world were also pro-vaccines. So I didn't know I would find that. But by bringing people together from completely different points of view, all of a sudden you start to see these issues through all sorts of different nuanced lenses And my job as a filmmaker, I think, as a scientific filmmaker, is I absorb all of that information and I spend years of my life reading, talking to people from all over the world, having banks of researchers sort of put this stuff into my brain, plug me into all these different bits of information, and then I kind of try to distill it in a way that's the most useful thing I can provide. And as far as I'm concerned, if my film just upsets you and makes you more fearful or angry, I haven't done my job. My job is to be provide, hopefully, useful information that makes you think about it in a slightly different way. And, of course, it's evidence-based and it requires critical thinking. But we try to do it with a sense of fun and we try to do it in ways that are engaging and, and, and don't bore you to death because what's the point to make a film that bores, bores you to death? <laughs> Which is why we have people working into songs in films occasionally and... Um, you know, why we do some some fun stuff in our films because we've got to make it engaging. And also for me, you know, um, 
science is cool. The way the way we've evolved to kind of think about things and how we problem solve, um, I find it really interesting. The whole process of going, okay, person A thinks this, person B thinks this, person C thinks this. How the hell do we even remotely get close to the whatever the truth is? You know, I never use the word truth. If you noticed, I've never used the word truth in the film that I've ever made. I can't tell you how many people said you should call it the truth about vaccines, the truth about uranium, the truth about vitamins over my dead body. You know, no, um, I'm not going to call it truth. Who am I to say I know what truth is? But what I will do is I will go and sift through extraordinary volumes of evidence and try to put it together in a way that is useful. When it when it comes to the the films you make and what they address, for me, it seems to be that you are creating a platform where people can explore the evidence in contrast to or in alignment with their beliefs. Why are we as humans so shit at, do you think, uh, seeing evidence over beliefs? Why do we want to hold on to our beliefs in the face of evidence? That's a really big question. Yeah, it is, um, but you've spoken yeah. to more people. You've spoken to more yeah. people with massive belief in the face of evidence than I ever will. Okay, let me tackle that sideways. Um, I come from a family where my father is a medical professional and my mother was a sannyasin, a follower of Osho, very spiritual, very faith-based, and liked going to... Uh, a lot of spiritual retreats. And I grew up in a world where both sides, I was exposed to both sides every day of my life. And my parents managed to stay married <laughs> most of the time quite happily. And what, what that did is, is um, help me really see that it's okay to question the world from different points of view. I'm really interested at the point at which what we know meets what we believe. That actual, if you can imagine a line there. And so I'm forever going, looking at that, where my father believes and what my mother believes meets. And I'm forever peering over each of their fences going, hmm, how do you work that problem out? And then, oh, how do you work that problem out? And I think that's brought me to a place where I'm respectful, I hope, of everybody's points of view. Even my dad says, you know, all paths lead to Buddha. Um, you know, and this idea that, you can have a set of beliefs and they can inform your life and that's your set of beliefs. I respect that. When you claim those beliefs are factual and when those beliefs have impacts on other people that could be catastrophic, that's when I think that you hit a problem and so you have to be able to look at this and go, okay, my belief system isn't fitting with the vast majority of, and I put facts in inverted commas because we know that things can change. But we do have to look at the large body of evidence. So, for example, climate change, we know 98% of the world's you know, climate scientists all agree that basically global warming is happening and it's human-induced. There are roughly around about 2% or less of people that um, think that's not true. I think we have to look at what the 98% tell us. I think this is important. We can look at the 2% and still go, mm, come on, you know, you're fringe and really you are fringe. Um, likewise with vaccines, 98% of the science tells us that these things are beneficial and save lives, countless lives, and there's less than 2% that sort of go, mm. So we need to sort of keep looking at going what the majority of science tells us. Now, every now and again, dogma is overthrown. 
you know, I've made films about scientists, you know, for Winner's Guide to the Nobel Prize. It was the story of Helicobacter pylori and stomach cancer, why Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, two Australians, won the Nobel Prize. And they discovered that there were these um, bugs that live in our stomach lining and uh, they were the triggers that could lead to stomach cancer now before they made that discovery we thought we didn't have bugs in our stomachs it was too acidic guess what today we think there are zillions of bugs in our stomachs so science does change you know get new evidence you, you adapt what you know but you need to look at it so so why do some people choose not to look at it i, I think in some ways it's easier you know um it's easier to go with what your tribal allegiance may um, suggest. You know, my mother's tribe um, was very much, and I use tribe in inverted commas here, but you know, her tribe is, is very much what you feel matters most and your intuition is very important. And um, she, she had an awful lot of faith in, in, in faith of various kinds of faith, spirituality. My father's tribe wants to see the evidence my father's tribe it says justify your position show me your data i think when we can look through the at the world through both lenses and explore what both offer to a worldview we're going to gain the most insight but rejecting one or the other i think is stupid personally i think is stupid a because it closes down people uh, and, and shuts out a proportion of the world i've met some fantastic scientists that are deeply religious I've met and spoken to a geneticist who works every day with genes that evolve under his microscope every day and sees evolution of cancer cells every day and yet doesn't believe in evolution. You can hold contrary beliefs simultaneously. It's an interesting thing. You know, it's cognitive, the ultimate cognitive dissonance um, and what does Dan Kahan call it? He calls it cognitive duality. I think we've become too binary, that you have to choose one or the other. And in my personal kind of worldview, I refuse to choose. I am very pro-science. I, I think science is incredible. It gives us such insight and such knowledge. But I'm also completely open to um, other experiences and, and appreciating other people's spiritual beliefs. I don't have a religion that I, I identify with, um, but nor do I call myself anything in relation to religion. I'm just kind of open to it. And whether that's a good thing or not, that's how I approach all of these subjects. But I worry when the world is forcing us to choose. And social media, you're right, you know, encourages us to choose. So does this idea, this idea of modern journalism is that we it's not a converse like everything has to be a debate. You said that things with conflict sell everything's got to be a debate here are 98% of people that, and it's interesting that the same number exists in two different belief systems, uh, 98 to two. Uh, I wonder if that's the new 2080. Um, here are 98, one of the people from the 98% and here's this other person from the 2% and we're going to present them as equal. They're not, but we're led to believe through the very format of the way our news is given to us or the way the information is shared publicly that each opinion is of equal value which has got us into a shitload of trouble particularly yeah. around climate uh, and particularly around a vaccination or in you know in in australia's case race relations you know in that yeah. so many of our people in our country 
are super cool with multiculturalism. Fine with it. And then here's this one person with a Southern Cross tattoo who's going to scream and yell and say horrible names, and we're going to present them as equal. And that's false. That's yeah. a false way of representing the situation. But that's where we are. It's very tricky. And I think that's why a lot of people are turning off watching the news and things like that because, you know, if it bleeds, it leaks, that old line in the media. You know, when I turn on the news night after night after night, I see terrible, terrible, terrible stories night after night after night, day after day. My, my social media feeds can be filled with that as well. I find it distressing that we're living in a world where that's the choice that's being offered to us. I mean, there's a marvellous bunch of people, I don't know if you know them, but they're called Future Crunch. Uh, and they've uh, got um, a wonderful website. And what they do is I think it's once a month or once a fortnight, they send out a newsletter of all the great things that have happened in the world. Really cool dudes. Really cool. Um, I love what they do. Um, like yesterday, everyone was talking about the election and all these terrible things. And one of my staff said to me, what would you have on the front page of a newspaper? And I said, well, this morning it was published that in America, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute lead investigators have discovered, along with uh, a group in London, have discovered a bacteriophage that saved a 16-year-old girl's life. Why is this important? Because she's got multi-drug-resistant bacterial infection and she's going to die. They saved her life with this bacteriophage. Now, this gives you hope that we can resist this terrible microbial upwelling that we've got happening at the moment and the fact that our, our antibiotics are starting to fail. And I was going, I put that on the front page of the newspaper. Why? Because in the next 10 years, you're going to have people die because they get cuts on their legs and the antibiotics don't work anymore. Now, we haven't seen that for 100 years. Now, that's the bad news angle. Let's scare the hell out of everybody, right? But the good news is, wow, these dudes over here, have been working on this weird other bug, and this bug can be slightly genetically tweaked and save this kid's life. And not only that, opened a door to a whole new way of thinking about how to fight bacteria. And I go, I'm sorry, I would put that on the front page, but I am a nerd, so that is fine, um, and I am cool with that. But I just kind of find that the stuff that we're interested in and the stuff that we focus on in our media and our social media, mainstream, whatever media, so much of it is hell-bent on making us fear, fearful and making us outraged and making us angry. Um, and increasingly, I think there are people who are choosing to reject that. Yeah. You know, they're detoxing off their phones, they're getting off their social media, they're choosing to go out into nature. There is an interesting backlash, if you like, is a dramatic way of putting it, but people are starting to question what this means and how how we want to have our worlds reflected. I mean, recently I've been really advocating people read books like Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now or Factfulness by Hans Rosling. You know, those two books will change how you think about our entire planet. Honestly, they give you such hope. I could not agree more. Uh, and I, I have to be, I have to sit in the Pinker camp of optimism, Sonia, because if I'm not... What's the fucking point? <laughs> you know, and I often say, I often say this to people like, you know, you pick two, you know, inc incredible or pick one incredible thing that's happened in our lifetimes. For example, I'm very, very fortunate to have gone to a business school in Amsterdam with a woman from Saudi Arabia that is now the ambassador to the US for her country. 
Now, if we put that on a timeline on a graph, all right, and she was actually behind getting women to drive and getting women to work in their country, all right, and if we, through those three points, if we drew a line from zero, which it was only 20 years ago, through those three points, where is it 20 years from now? Holy shit, what a time to be alive. How exciting is the future? Look where we're going. All right? Yeah. I have to because if not... And, and if we did that with more things, we might feel a bit better about the world. You mentioned something kind of, kind of interesting, and it does kind of lead to a bit of what we were discussing on, on the email, people rejecting their, um, their social media feeds, taking things on the phone. I've taken almost every Facebook product off my phone except for WhatsApp because that's where the poker game I, I play every week has their conversation. I'm trying very hard to get them off it, but that's the last chat that I've got, last Facebook product on my phone. But we talked a little bit about how we have become and we are becoming more polarized and, and this idea. And it, it, it's, it's, it kind of, it's a through line through your work of like, it's not this or that it's not us or them. It's nuanced. Mm. It's difficult. It's takes time. You can't hear about it for 10 seconds and make a decision for 10 seconds and then be galvanized in it. And within 30 seconds, you have a new position on this particular issue. That's not how well the world has ever worked. Um, what is your fascination with the uh, kind of polarization of public discourse and, and, and where did it begin for you? I think polarization has become something that's crept up on me um, in the sense of years ago we made a film called Crude, um, The Story of Oil, and it won lots and lots of awards. That's before I formed Gene Pool. I made that last I was at the ABC. And back then, you know, climate denialism was enormous and, and the current government, John Howard's government at the time, was saying, you know, climate change is nonsense. Hey, haven't we come a long way? Anyway, um, I'm being ironic. So polarisation really became an issue for me, really, with the vaccines programmes, the two films we made about vaccines, because I realised how much it was hurting us all. You know, polarisation, I think up to that point to me, was kind of an intellectual idea. And then I just realised that I was having difficulty talking to people who were anti-vaccine. I'd get angry. My husband would kick me under the table if someone around the dinner party said, oh, I don't vaccinate my children. I would just start telling them all the reasons why they were wrong. You know, that's how I started off. And then, of course, it became a very uncomfortable dinner and that person wouldn't listen to me and it became very tense. Um, and I thought, my God, I'm just as polarised, you know. And what I had to do a lot of work on was my own bias. I had to check my own bias at the door. And, you know, one of the great things I learned was declare your bias. You know, a lot of people say you have to find shared values to avoid polarisation or to help diminish polarisation. I would argue another way of approaching polarisation is to declare your differences. Right from the start, go, hi. I'm Sonia. I come from a real scientific kind of family. I was kind of brought up thinking about science and whatever. So I've got a natural sort of propensity to, to look for the evidence. And the evidence that I look at says, you know, vaccines are a really good idea. Well, well, what's your kind of point of view? And they say, I don't vaccinate my kids because I'm frightened of this and I read this and I heard that. And these days I go, tell me why. Tell me why. And what I found is that as we start exploring why they've made their decisions. And I tell you, their range of decisions, the most extraordinary one I ever heard was because I'm scared of antibiotic resistance. 
Now, because I'm a science geek, I'll tell you that makes no sense whatsoever. But for this person, their genuine fear of vaccines was because they thought it was exacerbating antibiotic resistance. <laughs> now, I'll tell you just for any listeners who are idle, I'm sure your listeners are, there, there is no correlation there whatsoever. But there was the reason for another one. There was a family, as a grandmother who had a particular medical condition and, and they were worried it was passed down the line. And there's all sorts of personal reasons. So once you start dealing with what people's personal reasons are, you start to realize you see the individual and you don't see the group and you stop being tribal. And I have a rule now that I take my tribal, I declare my tribal hat, you know, I'm pro-science, and then I try and put it on the table. So it's there and it's clear and it's declared. I never say I'm unbiased. I never say my films are unbiased. That would be lying. Of course I'm biased. Everyone's biased. The best you can hope for is to check your biases every day. I have a little sticker on my computer right now. It says, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> you know, it says, what if they're wrong as well? I remember 20 odd years ago, I made a film about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, otherwise known as mad cow disease. Um, and 20, 25 years ago, it was uh, breaking all around the world. And, and, they, and before people got sick, we were making a film about it. And I interviewed the then expert in Scotland. And my husband was filming. He's my cameraman on most of my films. And he remembers this clearly. And we always talk about it. We interviewed this guy from Scotland. And he said, BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, will never, ever transmit to humans. And within a year, 17 people were dead. And, and many more would die later. So, you know, sometimes science gets it wrong. What if I'm wrong is an interesting way to check your bias. Is that a way for us to start? before we find ourselves getting into polarizing? Look, I think it's helpful to check your biases. And, and so if you think, you know, all GM foods are bad or all GM foods are good, and by GM I mean genetically modified, whatever extreme, and I would say both those positions are extreme, I check that bias and go, okay, well, why do I think that? Where do I get my information from? Am I just saying that because my group thinks that? or because I've read deeply about it? Have I read deeply on the other side as well? Have I explored it? Um, and again, I would argue there's a spectrum in there. You know, in some instances, um, it's going to be incredibly important that we have genetically modified organisms. Um, and in other cases, it's going to be really bad news. Should I take vitamins or not take vitamins? Well, my bias when I approached the vitamins film was I come from a medical family. I come from a group of people that generally say it's just expensive pee. Um, I had to check that bias at the door. And guess what? I discovered it's much more than just expensive pee. Vitamins in their natural or their synthetic form are incredibly powerful and incredibly extraordinary molecules. Um, but in order to get to that, I had to check my bias at the door. And, and from that, it got much more interesting. I, I would argue we made a more interesting film. You know, we started out, Derek in particular, Derek Muller, who's the host of Vitamania, he started out very much thinking all oh, vitamin supplements are nonsense and crap and it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's going to bring everybody off. Now, you have to ask him whether he still thinks that. Um, but definitely we've come to a, a really nuanced view that in some instances, in some cases, some people really need them and they're lifesavers. But for the vast majority of people, we can get what we need from food. Now, it's a simple message, but it took us like two years to realise that, wow, that, you know, there are some cases where these things are lifesavers. 
But, you know, then from that became an even more, for me, profound realisation, and that is, if you don't mind me harping on about vitamins for a minute, but these vitamins supplements are artificially made. They're synthetically produced in laboratories around the world. The vast majority are made, um, the raw materials are made in China, and then they're packaged and everything in Australia and other countries. And because of that, it's worth treating them as if they're a medicine because they're powerful artificial molecules made in chemical factories under all sorts of different regimes and controls. Um, and you're putting them in your body perhaps every day. So treat them like a medicine. Think about them carefully and go, do I really need them? And don't for a second assume they're benign because in some instances they're not. The vast majority of the time you're not going to do very much harm unless you overdose, but they are chemical molecules and they have power. So that nuanced message came from me starting with a, I think they're probably all rubbish and travelling this journey of, okay, it's far more complicated than that. And what we didn't realise on the journey of that particular film was it would end up being a film less about vitamin supplements and more about vitamins, the molecules, and the incredible power of the molecules in food and the incredible, almost magical synergy of um, vitamins in foods and how they all work together in this incredible matrix. And when you isolate them and put them in pills, they just don't seem to do the same thing. And that's kind of astounding, you know. And then I didn't realise that eight of them, eight of the vitamins are made from fossil fuel products. I mean, who knew that? Not me. No, most people don't know that. You know, um, hello? Was it A, most of the Bs? Um, e and K, they're all derived, the raw materials are from fossil fuel products. Now, does that matter? Probably not. Lots of things are made from fossil fuel products. But I bet you don't think of that when you're popping your multivitamin every day. So I just want people to go, oh, I didn't know that. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't. We don't present it in a way that's horrifying. Oh, my God, they're made from fossil fuel. No, we just go, look, this is how they're built. Wow, isn't that interesting? Vitamin D, you know, the vast majority, it's well over 90%. It's very hard to get all talk numbers on this, but well over 90% of vitamin D pills are made from the greasy wool of sheep and mostly Australian sheep. Now I find that fascinating, you know, and, and we take you on the journey in Vitamania on how you build a vitamin D tablet and how the markup is extraordinary and the value of it. Do you know vitamin D per gram is more valuable than gold, than plutonium, or heroin? I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. Really. I'm in the wrong gigs on you. <laughs> I'd farm sheep if the vegans wouldn't come for me. <laughs> oh, I tell you, the most surprising thing, though, you know, was, and I guess the most distressing thing for me, to be really honest, in the context of polarisation and information sharing and misinformation sharing, I was really startled in making the Vitamania film that the vitamin industry would not be more open. We tried for two and a half, three years to get into any vitamin company raw materials plant um, and to see how they're built. And I tell you, we really tried, company after company after company, country after country after country. I'm talking globally. And we got very, very close. And then the last minute, it was always no. And I think that's the strategy. You know, They never actually say no. <laughs> they just make, you know, and I, 
I really regret that because we weren't out to get them. We weren't. We just wanted to understand how these things were built. And we'd made the series Uranium, um, Twisting Earth, the Dragon's Tale, uh, two years earlier. And honestly, it was easier to get into nuclear power plants in Ukraine and in the USA than it was to get into any vitamin raw material factory in the world. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That is very, very telling that we are, and when I watched Vitamania, you did get that feeling of that, well, because it has exploded in the States because of that little... Uh, those fabulous words, this product not designed to treat or cure any disease. You put it on any bottle, you can sell anything. And, uh, you know, that they are so cagey about what goes into it. Yet uh, the yoga girl who's the CEO of two companies takes three a day and everything's awesome. So you should take them too. And that's what's so fascinating about how we assimilate information. I mean, vitamins have a health halo around them. They've got this veneer of being healthy and beautiful and golden. And, of course, it's the advertising campaign and how it's marketed and everything. And it's also because, really, they come from food, you know, and they come from a beautiful source. Uh, and so we like to think of them as natural uh, and organic and somehow, you know, just all, all natural products. And the vast majority are not, not, not in pill or liquid form. They're not. They cannot be. They would be so expensive, you know, to produce. So they make them synthetically because it's more efficient. And to be honest, it's often safer. You know, like some of the, the wholly synthetic vitamin companies have some of the really good safety profiles because they're completely making it up in a lab and then in a chemical factory, the ones that are adding a bit of real live this or that rosehip or, or real orange juice or whatever, adding a bit, what you're then getting is biological mixtures in there um, that then need to have preservatives added, right? And then the shelf life changes. And, and so these are products that go on the shelves all around the world. And we take them, some people take them, a billion people take them regularly, a billion. I mean, that's extraordinary. We actually calculated 1.387 billion we're taking them best we could, but we rounded it down to about a billion people. And most people take them because they just believe they're good for them. It's this health halo. And so we went on this journey to try and figure out why, why that was. And it's so interesting. You, know, you can blame it on marketing and money and, you know, Big Vita, <laughs> let alone Big Pharma. Big Vita and Big Pharma and Big Vita are the same. If you look back to the roots of the companies, a lot of them are owned by the same people and the same conglomerates. But the thing about vitamins that I was really shocked by is in most countries, none of them 
have to be tested for safety or efficacy before they go on sale. So the product you're taking or your child is taking possibly every day does not have to be tested by anybody to say that it's safe or effective before they put it on market. Now, I, I did not expect to find that. I was so shocked. I was kind of going, why is that not front page news? And I still don't understand that, to be honest. But the great gift of making that film, the Vitamania film for me, and I think for Derek Muller as well, he, he and I both said that we didn't realise where our film was going to take us. And where it took us was a, an extraordinary shift in how we think about food. I don't look at food, a plate of food the same way anymore. What was really what was really telling is when you went into the NASA laboratory where they're prepping the food for the three-year round-trip Mars mission in 2030, and the only supplement that they were going to give them was D because you can't yeah. get it from sunlight. Every other yeah. vitamin requirement was provided by the whole food within the freeze-dried um, preparations they were making. If that's not telling NASA, who have more data than anyone... Uh, on this stuff if nasa are going oh, no, no 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 there's no protein pills and put your helmet on this is not a david bowie song you just eat the broccoli and you'll be all right spaceman um, that really said something 55 years of research they so done into working that out and still food was the best source it, and it wasn't you know they could they'd like to send pills it'd be much lighter and simpler and you know um to do that but what they found was they tested them and they found the synergy this is the key word the synergy between the micronutrients and the macronutrients in food and the vitamins and the minerals and all the phytonutrients all the other amazing things that we don't even understand yet in a single piece of broccoli um, they work together in these ways that we don't fully understand and they couldn't replicate it or they haven't been able to replicate it yet maybe one day they will but right now, they can't. Two more things I really wanted to talk to you about, Sonia. You made a film about, about uranium. You made a film about nuclear power. What did you discover and what was the thing that was most surprising to you in the world of evidence versus beliefs around nuclear power? Yeah, uranium was a really interesting journey for our whole team, I think. All of us began with what my... Trump-supporting aunt would call my lefty, greeny, elitist bias, <laughs> um, which I take that on. I agree. I have a lefty, greeny, elitist bias in the sense that, you know, I know where my bias lies. And so I, we all started the journey with uranium thinking that it was, you know, there were catastrophes all over the world, obviously, that we know of um, from Fukushima, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, et cetera, et cetera. But we all wanted to explore what it was and how it worked and what was uranium. And I just kept asking the writer, director. I didn't write direct that one. A wonderful guy called Wayne Fumiri did. And uh, I kept saying to him, but where did it start? What was, where did uranium begin? Did it begin in the Big Bang? Or where was it formed? I mean, at the time it was formed. How does it work? What does it do? What is the molecule? And we spent months just understanding uranium. And then... We understood how we learned about uranium and then we learned how we applied uranium and, of course, it, took, it takes us to weapons and to pollution and to catastrophes. 
the biggest thing I learned over that time, or the biggest thing I felt was grief, surprisingly. Here was an extraordinary source of power. You know, our planet wouldn't exist without uranium at its core. We probably would not have evolved without uranium involved in the molten core of our planet because of radioactivity actually triggers genetic mutation. And we needed mutation in order to change and to evolve, to become humans, you know, and to become every creature on Earth. So actually, a certain amount of radiation is extremely vital for life. And mutation is vital for life um, and for perpetuation and, and survival. And then we applied it to bloody bombs. And I often wonder if back in the 1950s we'd, have, we'd sat and looked at this technology and the splitting the atom and learned how, how, what uranium was capable of. If we'd all sat down and gone, goodness, this is extraordinary. What do we want to do with it? What do you think? What do the artists think? What do the philosophers think? What do the ethicists think? What do the doctors think? What, not, not just what do the physicists and the warmongers think. Now, it's because of the time, of course, the timing and the history, the moment in history we're at. But I feel incredible grief that what could have been an extraordinary source of power that has far less damaging impact than coal. I mean, so many, many tens of thousands, possibly millions now, people have died from coal-related diseases, accidents, pollution, etc., than has ever, ever died from uranium and, and from nuclear disasters. When you look at the cost-benefit or, you know, which one's more damaging, it's clearly coal. I feel grief. I think, wow, what a pity we didn't harness that at that time and do good things with it. But right now I hope that we can do what we want to do in terms of protecting the climate and having decent power sources by a mix of renewables and make that work. Um, because there are problems, of course, with nuclear. There are huge problems. Waste is one of them and cost is the other in a nutshell. But that's, you asked me what I learned. So what I learned was this sense of the colossal power, the wonder, the tremendous wonder of this element called uranium. It's the wonder of the actual thing, you know, the world we live in. Um, yeah. And what we do with it is our own bloody problem. Sometimes we use these tools badly. <laughs> I had a really similar conundrum, to be honest. Yeah, I grew up when I grew up I'm 45, I grew up with being just aware of Three Mile Island, very aware of Chernobyl, very aware of Fukushima, and had my thoughts about nuclear energy. And then when I was, I'm going to use the word, when I was confronted with the data, and the data clearly shows, clearly, clearly shows that nuclear causes something like 440 times fewer deaths than coal. Like, it's really that safe? The story we've been told is it's, it's, it's the end, it's the film, The China Syndrome, it's, it's horror, it's death, it's Godzilla, it's mutations, it's monsters, it's, it's people, you know, growing a third arm, it's the three-eyed fish in The Simpsons, it's all that. And that, you know, this, 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 the belief versus the evidence, and I, I've, I felt the same way. I felt like, oh, it's a real shame. It's a real shame that <laughs> we can't, haven't kind of put more time and energy into figuring this part out. Uh, yeah. It could be like that. It could it it could solve a shitload of problems real quick if we could figure yeah. it out. And going to MIT and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and seeing some of the wonderful and, and other universities, seeing what the young people are doing 
with um, nuclear power, with fission, with fusion. I mean, exploring all of these things, some of which we rejected and some of we're really looking at again, looking at these alternate points, of, uh, types of power and saying, how can we try and do something better? I, I remember one lot uh, at MIT had looked at nuclear waste and managed to recycle and reuse a shipping container of nuclear waste and reduce it down to the size of like a small pebble. And yes, that small pebble is still colossally radioactive and incredibly dangerous, but it's no longer the size of a shipping container. Um, and they used the energy from the shipping container of waste and just reused it and reused it and reused it, drawing the power out of it. And you're thinking, well, this is really important. So rejecting anything out of hand, this gets back to our issue of polarisation and belief mm. this is fact, rejecting anything out of hand without thinking about it and looking at it carefully and talking to people who are perhaps more knowledgeable than ourselves, I think is a mistake. I don't claim to have all the answers and I don't claim our films have all the answers, but what we do try to do is go on a journey to really explore and understand better. <laughs> you know, and, and allow people to see things from different points of view and declare that our bias, this is the science film that is going to, you know, clearly state at some point, this is what we think, but you've been shown a whole range of reasons why and you've been shown other alternate ways of viewing this and hopefully people just can use what's useful to them. You can watch our Uranium series and just enjoy the history. It's a really great piece of history. You can watch it for the lovely Godzilla films and all the crazy bits of archive. You can watch it to understand exactly um, how uranium works. Um, you can watch it to explore an understanding of Chernobyl and Fukushima. There's lots of levels you can watch it on. Um, and you can ultimately ask the same question that we do at the end. Well, what do we think we should do with it? Likewise with vitamins, you know, you can understand where the naturally occurring vitamins come from and how important they are and how you can go blind if you don't have vitamin A. You can overdose on vitamin A as well. You can overdose on vitamin D. You can understand how the artificial ones are made or the pills are made. And then you can decide. You know, at the moment we're doing genetic engineering and, and we're doing it in a very, very different way um, and looking at human, plant and animal engineering. and we are entering you know, a completely new world of genetic engineering. It is one of the three big forces shaping our planet, I believe, at the moment. Climate change, artificial intelligence, and gene editing. I think they're the three biggest things, personally, I think the three biggest things shaping our futures. And what we want to do is get the public involved in this series, really involved on a global level. And we're doing a world-first experiment that's going to get people engaged. Because of what I learned from uranium, what if they'd stopped and not made a bomb and gone, hello, everybody, what does everybody want to do with this? Come on, everybody, come on, join. It would have been chaos, of course, and mayhem and people having opinions. and That's fine. That's democracy. You know, let's all jump in here. Let's find out what people want to do with genetic editing. Do you want to switch off the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations that lead to breast cancer? Do you want to get rid of leukemia? Um, mutations in your child do you want to be able to tweak if we can we can't do it yet but the Alzheimer's if we find the particular gene that in this family causes Alzheimer's do you want to remove it do you want to make a tomato that you switch one gene off and you get 500 times the lipozyme 
500 times the vitamin content. And you haven't added anything. All you've done is switched off a single gene. Do you want that? Does it matter? I mean, there are the sorts of questions I'm going, we have to grapple with right now because we have the technology. It is going to be used. Do not for a second kid yourself. So let's get engaged. Let's start setting parameters. Let's start talking about what the rules we want in place. Let's say what we think is our threshold of disgust. Let's discover what that is. Maybe your threshold is, you know, no, you can't tamper with food. Maybe mine is, no, you can't tamper with animals. Maybe someone else is, no, you can't tamper with embryos. Let's find out. Let's talk about it. Because for me, you know, science isn't static, obviously, and science is not the be-all and end-all, but science gives us the tools, incredible tools, gobsmacking tools. We've just got to decide how to use them. You've mentioned this a few times, and I think this is how I'd like to, um, you know, like the last thing I want to ask you about is that a lot of your films, well, all of your films, not only do they skirt this, here's where the evidence and the beliefs meet, how do we challenge that? But you've mentioned it a few times. And for me, what I can gather is one of the biggest inhibitors to changing your mind or publicly stating a different opinion I, I felt weird about vaccines, but now I've vaccinated all my kids or I went through uni campaigning for the Greens, but now I'm voting liberal, is the fear of being extradited from the tribe yes. and that your identity is so tied to how you feel about these things. When it comes to changing your mind, being presented with evidence, how would you suggest people think about being able to change your mind and feel like you won't be excommunicated? Or is that a barrier to changing your mind? Absolutely. I think it's the biggest barrier. I think it hurts more to be isolated from your tribe than it hurts to be wrong. So I think that's what we're dealing with. Um, and all of us don't like to be excluded. It's horrible to feel excluded. And, and it's difficult and increasingly difficult, as you pointed out, because of social media and social branding, in a sense. Um, what I've learned is, number one, respect. For example, I do not use the term anti-vax. Don't use it in the film. Don't use it on social media. I don't post. I try not to post any uh, things when people call other people anti-vaxxers. I just find it disrespectful to respect, mutual respect if possible. Secondly, curiosity. A really big driver of crossing the divide between different points of view. They've shown through various studies, at, again, Dan Kahan's work has shown this, is curiosity. If you remain curious and open to ideas and exchanging ideas, that's a huge step. So respect plus curiosity is a really big thing. And then the third for me is our tagline for our company, and that is embrace complexity. You can't fight it. You can't. Trying to simplify everything into tiny little sound bites or just easy things, actually real life doesn't work like that. 
So embrace complexity. So that's what I've learned. Be respectful and, and really, really try and keep an open mind and be curious about things and trigger other people's curiosity. Work hard to get them interested. And, yeah, embrace that, the differences and embrace the complexity. And, and be authentic because the other thing is I find if you, there's no point in bullshitting people. You know, I'm pro-science. I love science. I think it's incredible. I think it's incredible. Is it perfect? No. Has it got all the answers? No. But when life comes down to issues of risk versus benefit, which is what a lot of life is about, it's one of the great tools we've got in our toolkit. So we'd be wise to use it when it's appropriate. I cannot thank you enough. You must be incredibly busy to spend this much time of your day talking down a Skype line to me in Sydney. It's <laughs> the best. I'm so grateful for your time. And I will shamelessly pitch um, there's more than there's more than one host. <laughs> I'm around <laughs> if you need me. <laughs> of course, yes, yes, yes. No, thank you. That's it. So I'm I'm sort of blind to these things sometimes. That's a really good point. The whole mental health area. I want to go there again one day. One I, day I, I, yeah, absolutely. I'm you know I'm very passionate about creating a larger discourse in our society around complexity, around thinking about things in a different way, and to be honest, around being uncomfortable is the price we pay for being human. And so things are going to be uncomfortable. So let's, you know, let's learn how to be with uncomfortability and learn how to make decisions around that rather than constantly trying to push everything away. So we're always happy and safe. And, and that's, I think, what I really enjoy about your films is that seems to be, uh, it, it really speaks to that for me. Like here are complicated things in your face in a nice way. There's animations, but here they are. And I really enjoy them. Um, thing about diversity views is the price you pay for democracy absolutely absolutely so all the time it's like let's not forget we've asked for this we've chosen this so when we get angry at people or frustrated that people having views that are different to ours maybe it's worth reminding ourselves that's the price of democracy and we're lucky we're, we're lucky really. you're the best have a fantastic day thank you so much for your time no worries. That was Sonia Pemberton. You can find her on Twitter. She's at Pemberton Films. And you can watch all of her movies, genepoolproductions.com, G-E-N-E, poolproductions.com. A massive thanks to Andy Ma for producing this show on the audio front. A big thank you to show production and live production from Rachel Barrett and baby production from Audrey Griffin and music production by Toehider. Mike Mills, who also gave me the brilliant idea to recaption paparazzi photos of me and my wife having a tiff down the shops with a Black Sabbath joke. And it all went on from there. So thanks, Mike. Oh, sounds like my nephew's home, so I better go. I hope you have a good week. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.